Hello, and welcome back to the Outdoor Minimalist Podcast. I'm your host, Meg Carney, an outdoor and environmental writer and author of the book, Outdoor Minimalist, Wasteless Hiking, Camping, and Backpacking. The Outdoor Minimalist Podcast has a goal to give listeners actionable ways to waste less hiking, camping, backpacking, and more during every step of their process. Your impact outdoors starts long before you hit the trail and goes beyond leave no trace ethics. You'll learn how to identify sustainable outdoor brands, how to ask hard questions regarding sustainability, and begin to shift and evolve your mindset to integrate minimalism into all of your outdoor pursuits. In episode 73 of the Outdoor Minimals podcast, we are talking about wild horses. Specifically, we will be discussing the wild horses that inhabit the western regions of the United States and live on public lands. So because this is a topic that I knew little to nothing about before doing this interview, I had the pleasure of speaking to two of the three women that created the Women in the Wilderness film or documentary. In creating this film, the three women embarked on a one month long horse packing journey across the state of Wyoming with nine Mustangs. <laughs> During this time, the main goal was to educate the public and for themselves to learn more about the wild horse issue and what was going on and see it from all the different perspectives. So they interviewed people along the way, advocates, conservationists, people from BLM, ranchers, all the people that have stakes in the wild horse issue. And so in the interview, that you'll see in just a minute. We hear from Catherine and Louisa, only two of the three women that created this film. And they talk about their journey, horse packing, how the idea came about, their general passions surrounding horses, the making of the film, and what they think people should know more about when discussing the wild horse issue. Adventuring plans on your calendar? Remember to grab your Lava Linens travel towel on your way out the door. Founded by a mother-daughter team, Lava Linens crafts durable, luxurious travel towels as a more sustainable and better performing alternative to microfiber and cotton towels. Powered by flax and hemp, they're designed to be by your side for years to come. Use the code OUTDOORMINIMALIST for 15% off your next order. Welcome to the show, you guys. I'm really glad that you could jump on here. I know it was kind of like a last minute thing, but I think since there's multiple of you, we're just going to start by having you guys introduce yourselves. And then with the classic question that I ask all of my guests, I'll have you share how you got involved in outdoor recreation, but for this episode specifically, how you got involved and interested in horses. Awesome. Thanks for having us on, Megan. Thanks for making this happen so quickly. We really appreciate it. So my name is Catherine Boucher. I originally grew up in Vermont, which is where I am now. And then in the summers, I spend my time working at a ranch in Wyoming, in Southern Wyoming. I have always kind of been sort of outdoorsy with my family. Like we'd go camping and spend a lot of time outside. But I think horses is really the way that I really got connected to the outdoors through like trail riding. In terms of like how I got started with horses, I started riding when I was about nine years old at a barn here in Vermont just taking lessons and I just kind of got bit by the horse bug and just couldn't get enough. Been riding ever since then. And yeah, it's been such a nice way. I kind of grew up riding in an arena and outside a little bit. And then when I moved out West to Wyoming, I got to go on these really incredible trail rides. And that was really what connected me with the outdoors and kind of getting to experience that on horseback. Hi, I'm Louisa. I also grew up on the East coast in Massachusetts and grew up skiing and out on the water on boats and riding horses 
my love for the outdoors really started when I did a national outdoor leadership school program for three months in New Zealand, where I got to backpack and sea kayak and whitewater canoe. And then I decided to go to school out in Durango, Colorado at Fort Lewis. And then I actually was an outdoor education major there. So then that kind of sprung into a lot more skiing, cannoneering, rock climbing, fly fishing, and then working on a ranch in Wyoming, which is where I met Catherine. So I love being outside and yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to ask how you guys all met because there is, you guys are a trio, so we're missing one person right now. So did you all meet working on that ranch together? Yeah, we did. Caroline and I met our first summer working at this ranch. And then a couple of years later, Louisa worked at the ranch. Then we all connected through that same ranch. That's awesome. So while you guys were all working there, is that kind of where you came up with the idea of doing this woman in the wilderness film or what's just the genesis of the whole project slash what is the project, I guess, because <laughs> listeners don't know what it is yet. <laughs> yeah. So my first summer at the ranch I was a freshman in college and I think I was pretty excited to maybe try horse packing. And I went to Catherine, who's the head wrangler. She's my boss. And I was like, I really want to do a large horse packing trip. So she and I had no idea where to start. Like I started with the route thinking that that was where we should start and not at all. A lot more planning went into it. And Catherine knew Caroline, who's not with us tonight, but Caroline joined and then we were like, why we should do a documentary film. So that kind of took it to the next level. None of us really knew much about filming. So planning that whole process was pretty difficult. But for me, I really love delving into more of the route planning and like packing the food and all of that. But there is a lot more moving parts than just that. So it kind of just started with an idea. And then here we are four years later. (laughs) Oh, I was just going to ask where you did the trip. Was it in Wyoming or did it cover multiple states? What was kind of the area that you covered? Yeah, so we just covered Wyoming all because pretty much we started with a love for Wyoming because that's where the ranch was, where we all worked. So we started up in Lander, Wyoming, and then we packed horses through the Wind River Range, went down into the Red Desert, which is like central Wyoming. And then we went on into encampment and actually ended at the ranch that we all met at, which is like southeast corner of Wyoming. How far is that? I just, I mean, I can picture it in my head, but like distance wise, how many miles? Yeah. Yeah. We went about 300 miles on that trip. Yeah. How long did it take you guys? We were packing for 30 days. It took a month. It feels like fast. I don't know. That is fast, but that feels fast to me. Wow. It it was actually kind of slow with filming and everything. It was just really slowed down because we'd have to stop and like redo things to get shots or you know, like change the route because there was like a cooler shot a different direction. So it's actually 300 miles in 30 days. It's like pretty slow on horseback. But we also like took rest days for the horses and kind of took our time in that way too. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I don't know that much about horses, so it would make sense that I wouldn't necessarily understand the normal speed (laughs) at which they're supposed to be packing. So while you were doing the filming and like planning process for this trip, did you focus on going through areas that have known wild horse populations and like meeting people that work around or with the horses on a regular basis? 
Yeah, that was exactly the intent of the route was to go through, they're called herd management areas, which is where wild horses are sort of roam. So we went through a really big herd management area in the Red Desert and we saw tons of wild horses out there. And then in terms of the people that we interviewed along the way, there are a lot of different sides to the issue that we'll get into later in the podcast. So we tried to get, you know, a lot of different people on different sides of the issue. So, you know, we had like government representatives that work and manage the wild horse populations. We had like wild horse advocates. We had conservationists, um, so cattle ranchers. So we kind of tried to get as many sides as we could of the problem. And I mean, it makes sense to me why you chose Wyoming, but is that the only place in the United States with like large populations of wild horses or are there other areas that have these management areas? No. So there's actually several states that have herd management areas. Actually, one of the largest Mustang populations is in Nevada, but Wyoming, Idaho, Arizona, Colorado, like all of these places have Mustangs. And also one that people don't think of as much is the Chincoteague Islands, which are down south. And those are totally like under different restrictions. I don't know much about the Chincoteague ponies, but I do know that was my first thought when we started this project. I think especially for Catherine and I being from the East Coast, like that's the herd that you think of are the Chincoteague ponies and how they cross the canal in the ocean. And like I remember reading books about that as a kid. But I didn't realize how many actual Mustangs are out on the range and that there's actually an overpopulation problem and they're everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, but we just focus on Wyoming. Okay, that makes sense. And that's kind of a good segue to kind of talk about because you mentioned overpopulation. So is that the main focus area because they are expanding outside of these management zones? Or is it because like they are not as common as they used to be? Is it like bison (laughs) at all? I don't know as much about bison. Maybe you do, Lou. But the wild horse problem is kind of a complicated one to explain. So basically, I'll do my best here. So there's a lot of different entities involved. It's not just like wild horse advocates and the government that manages them. There's there's a lot of different people that have stakes in this problem. So basically, there's a branch of the government called the Bureau of Land Management, which manages public lands. And so this branch of the government is in charge of allocating space for all public uses. So anything that involves like wildlife, livestock, energy uses, and wild horses. So the BLM, Bureau of Land Management, they set an appropriate management level, AML for short, for how many wild horses should be in each herd management area. They basically just say like, how many horses can the land support? So There's a few different things going on with that. For one, the BLM has never met their goal AML. So they have like target AMLs that they set every year that pretty much stay the same every year. And they've had these for 50 years and they've never been able to meet the AMLs. They're usually like way over the numbers that they're trying to meet. And then on the other side of this, many like wild horse advocates believe that the government is like being influenced. Like I've I've heard them say this, that they think the government is being influenced by cattle companies and that the AMLs are actually too low in comparison to livestock allocations. So you have like two different sides saying two completely opposite things. So conservationists are also, you know, have a stake in this. They're worried about overuse of public lands and like leading, you know, that can lead to overgrazing and like degradation of the environment. So it's kind of hard to get down to like the real crux of the problem in just like a sentence. But I think the real problem is that horses aren't livestock. They're not cattle, but they're also not wildlife. So it's like, how do you manage them? 
they're in this category of their own. Like, you know, with wildlife, if we have an overpopulation of deer, we just give out more hunting tags that year. And, you know, if there's not enough grass for cattle, then we give out less grazing permits. So with horses, it's like, what do you do? Nobody wants to hunt a horse because culturally that's not something that we do in the U.S. And for the same reason, they're not livestock because we don't want to eat them. So that's kind of why it's such a challenge to manage horses in a nutshell. Yeah. So yeah, that is confusing, but I am kind of following. So the current management strategy, like the main overarching body is the Bureau of Land Management. And then do other people just have like a say in it because they also are using that land or like, I guess I don't fully understand how they're being managed. (laughs) Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So everyone kind of has a different stake in it. Like, so there was a bill that was passed in 1971 called the Wild and Free Roaming Horses and Burrows Act that basically just protects wild horses from like being harassed or slaughtered or sold for slaughter, whatever. So it basically protects wild horses. So there's like so many different sides. Like, so like cattle ranchers have a stake in this because they are sharing public land with the wild horses. So they want grazing permits for their cattle to keep, you know, their livelihood. Wild horse advocates have almost as much say because the horses are living on public land and they just have like an interest in keeping horses wild. So I think everyone kind of has a different reason and a different stake in it for different reasons, if that makes sense. Yeah. Are there like discussions of different management strategies happening because it is an issue and people aren't necessarily agreeing? Well, it's interesting because when you boil it down, It really comes down to the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management, or the government dealing with the management of Mustangs. Even though they're public lands, you have the BLM rounding up Mustangs in helicopters and darting with PZP, which is like a birth control substance for horses. So the BLM is really the biggest player. They're the ones that are dealing with the situation of overpopulation with wild horses even though it is, you know, it's like everyone's land. So that's pretty much what it boils down to. And then there's advocates that are actually doing something about it. They're out there and they're learning how to dart horses with the birth control substance. So they're out on the range doing that. And then also it's been a change of pace because now the BLM is also learning to administer a birth control substance for the horses. So I don't know, it's like they're learning, but we're kind of like in a standstill because right now what the BLM thinks is the best possible option is round up horses by helicopter and then putting them into holding facilities, which is basically just where they're keeping Mustangs and they're feeding them, but they're just, you know, sitting in a corral together. And some of those horses get adopted out, but not a lot of them end up getting adopted. So they do eventually like capture some horses and then sell them. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. If there is like an overpopulation, that's like one of the tactics because they have like the birth control thing that you're saying and then they'll just corral them together and then be like selling them like they would a not wild horse, a domesticated horse. (laughs) Yeah. So they basically once they take them off of public lands, they put them in a holding facility or a pen and then they get auctioned off and some of them get adopted and then some of them don't. And the problem is that according to the BLM, like there's always an overpopulation. There's never a year that they haven't been overpopulated. So they do these roundups every single year. 
sometimes in larger numbers, sometimes in smaller numbers, but they round up these horses every single year because they set these AMLs and they can't ever meet them. So they're always overpopulated. Interesting. Okay. What is your guys' stance on like what is happening? I mean, after you had this experience and you saw like it from all of the different perspectives, you know, if you're comfortable sharing your opinion, I would love to hear it. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of a hard one to answer. One, because we're trying to create a documentary where we are as unbiased as possible. So a little bit of me doesn't want to like give too much away because I think the documentary, I think we would all agree that it sort of did change our opinion in the end after talking with so many different people. I would say I'm honestly kind of somewhere in the middle. Like, I think I understand the advocate's side more than I did before. Like, I think before the trip, I was leaning more towards on the side of cattle ranchers. And now that I understand like where the advocates are coming from, I can understand why they feel the way that they do. So I would say I'm kind of somewhere in the middle of all this. I don't know that I stand more on one side or another anymore. Yeah, I have to agree with Catherine. It's hard to pick a side. More for me, it comes down to the landscape, though. I know it is public lands. It's like lands of multi-use. But if our landscape is not healthy enough to support Mustangs, we can't support livestock, we can't support wild animals, we also can't support humans, then what do we do? And if there is an overpopulation issue with Mustangs and they are destroying the landscape, then they're destroying that landscape for wild animals, cattle, no matter how you look at it. You know, it kind of, for me, boils down to what's happening on public lands, you know, and what is the best for the landscape. Do you think there would ever be like a discussion of removing humans from the landscape, you know, like making it less accessible for recreation activities so the horses and the ranchers could kind of create a better balance? I don't think so. I mean, just because... I think that obviously people throw trash and stuff. That's a different story. But people going out there to mountain bike or seems like it's less stress on the landscape than thousands of large animals that spend their entire lives out there. You know, I don't know. That's a hard question. Yeah, I guess I think for that question, I was more so thinking of like the UTV, ATV areas because Mm. like motorized vehicles, I feel are like more comparable to like large hoofed animals. (laughs) Yeah. What do you think, Catherine? I don't know. That's a hard question. I feel like the answer is no. Like, I don't think we would take away those sort of rights is what I want to say for people to be able to do that, because then you kind of take away the ability for like people to go hunting out there, which helps manage Hunters are huge conservationists. I don't think they always get that good title, but they are. So I think that would kind of limit their ability out in the wild and out in that landscape. So I don't see that ever happening. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted your opinion because I feel like public lands are, I mean, public lands for a reason, but when we're trying to balance it with like wild animals and stuff like that, I feel like it just becomes like a trickier conversation. (laughs) Yeah, it Um, definitely does. So with the documentary, that is kind of like your method to raise more awareness around the conversation of wild horse conservation. And I like that it is being unbiased and it is showing the perspectives of everyone involved. So for the listeners, how could they help support wild horse conservation in whatever way they choose? So I think it's kind of boils down to what we've been talking about is like, education is key 
if you want to know how to support horse conservation, like learn as much as you can and about as many different sides as you can. For us, we came into this project not knowing that much or not necessarily having an opinion. And we left feeling like we had covered a lot of bases and talked to a lot of different folks about this wild horse situation. So I think just, you know, education is key. And also supporting, like, once we get our documentary out, if you watch it, you know, you'll kind of hopefully form a better opinion based off of the interviews that we conducted. When does the documentary come out? So we're currently running a crowdfunding campaign to raise money for our post-production expenses. So basically we have all the film we need. We just need to like edit it down into a movie. So we're hoping that after this successful crowdfunding campaign, we'll be able to produce it this year. Hopefully by the end of the year, we're trying to get it out as quickly as we can. So no exact date yet, but stay tuned. Awesome. So if people are interested in supporting your film and wild horse conservation in general, how can they kind of like follow along with you guys and your progress with the film or contribute to your crowdfunding campaign? To contribute to our crowdfunding campaign, we are running the campaign through a website called Seed and Spark. They're a really awesome platform and you can find us on there if you just go to seedandspark.com. And if you type it, women in the wilderness into the search bar, we'll come up, we'll be the first ones up there. And even if you can't contribute, you know, any money to that campaign, there's lots of other ways that you can help just by sharing. You can just follow the campaign that helps us get like little rewards from Seed and Spark in the future. And also just following us on social media is like a huge help and just sharing because that's really what it's all about is we're just trying to educate as many people as possible. So the more people that know about us and follow along with us, the better. So in terms of where you can find us on social media, we're on Instagram at Women in the Wilderness Film. There's a dash between each word. And then we're also on Facebook at Women in the Wilderness Film. And we also have a website, womeninthewildernessfilm.com. And we have some footage on there that you can see. And you can just learn more about the three of us and our film team and see some footage. Awesome. Yeah, I will be sure to share the links to the crowdfunding campaign and then all of your socials. So if people want to go to the show notes, they can check that out there. But with that, do you guys have any last bits of information or resources that you wanted to share with the listeners at all? There's so many resources out there. I mean, if you just do a quick Google search, you'll find tons and tons of articles about wild horses. I have like a folder of them saved on my computer. I just, there's so many articles and they come out all the time. Like people will send me stuff in local papers out West. Nat Geo has done a bunch of articles on wild horses. So just keeping up on like Google searches and news articles, they come out all the time about wild horses. So there's definitely like a surplus of information out there. And like Louisa said earlier, just be careful about what you read because there's so many different sides to it. I think if you can educate yourself on all of the different sides, you know, like if you find an article that seems more anti-BLM, then go find the other side of that that's kind of more like anti-wild horse or whatever. But I think just trying to educate yourself on as many different perspectives on the problem is the best way to keep learning. It's also really interesting if you go onto the BLM's website, it goes state by state. You can see like the stats, you can see how many horses have been removed, how many horses they've administered with PZP, how many horses are in current holding facilities. So that can be kind of interesting if you're more like a numbers person. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm going to check that out. And I'll put the link to that one in the show notes for sure. But if you had any specific news sources that you felt like were less biased um, that you would wanted me to share, then I might ask you for a few of those so I can share those as well. 
But with that, I'm glad you guys could come on and share information about your film. I'm excited to see it. I think it is a really cool idea. And your journey in general sounded really adventurous and fun. But I love that it had kind of like a bigger meaning behind it all. So thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear, let me know. Leave a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Instagram at outdoor.minimalist.book or subscribe to our weekly newsletter at theoutdoorminimalist.com. For even more updates, educational resources, and to help build an outdoor community with the shared goal to create a better outdoor space as we recreate.